Welcome to the Cascadian Prophets Podcast, a production of the Cascadia Poetics Lab, empowering people to practice poetry and deepen connections to place, self, and the present moment. On September 26, 2021, Greg Bem interviewed Paul Nelson, Seattle poet and interviewer, and the founder of the Cascadia Poetics Lab, just after his 60th birthday. Here now the interview by Greg Bem of your humble narrator, Paul Nelson. So thanks for doing this, Paul. Good afternoon. And uh, what day is today? This interview Sunday. is happening on Sunday the 26th, 26th of September. September. Jeez. Four days after my 60th birthday. You are 60. I know. It's hard to believe. First, before we get started, you know, you've supported my work uh, like few others have, and I'm really grateful for it. So thanks. You're very welcome. It's been quite a ride and quite a a wonderful journey, in a way, to just watch you evolve and watch us evolve as individuals. So I'm glad to have been privy to it all. But this is less about me and more about you. I'm curious what you are feeling. How is it to be 60? How do you feel as a six-year-old? I feel fantastic. I wish I could lose a little weight. I feel a little, like during COVID I gained some weight. Very difficult for me to lose weight because I've always... Till I was about 42 and my metabolism changed, I was always able to eat whatever the fuck I wanted. And now, you know, a bag of cheese puffs here and uh, chocolate there and, you know, a couple of pizzas. And it's just very difficult to lose the weight. Also, no basketball during COVID. I just started mm. playing one-on-one again. So I'm, I'm getting back into playing basketball and, you know, running, I tried doing it. I might try doing it again, but it's boring. I hate just running for no reason, and um, and it was very slow uh, jogging, very slow jogging as it was. So trying to get back into basketball is the key to that. But other than that, you know, I mean, you see the view even on a cloudy day living on Lake Washington. It's just phenomenal. And uh, in fact, the uh, the indigenous name for this creek that goes by here is Tuxwuquib, and uh, I think it's just wonderful to to know that to have. Waterman's book about the, the local place names and be able to put that together thanks to my work doing the slaughter book, coming across um, you know resources like this that continue to inform and continue to connect me to the land and to the people who lived here before settlers did. Anything significant in living here during COVID? Isolation? Well, it was easier, I think, living here because, you know, it's like watching TV, looking out the window. Um, And the lake is like a giant brain that magnifies prayers and Mm. attention. Indigenous people believe, uh, still believe, that water, um, you know, I mean, water's always here. That water, in one form or another, was always here. It was the same water that Jesus and Dante and Wanda Coleman and everybody else was drinking. So it has a way of showing up in some other part of the world and carrying the essence of your prayer there. So I think it's been a gigantic um, asset, especially with that knowledge that praying while looking at the lake um, amplifies that. And it seems like in many ways my own progress um, as a human and my own path towards individuation has been uh, greatly enhanced by living here. Also, you know, the fact that it's um, 
a very diverse neighborhood. I hate using the word diverse. That's what white people use to make them feel better about living in a neighborhood that has uh, black people in it and indigenous people. Um, but I love that this is the situation. You know, I grew up in a segregated neighborhood in Chicago um, when I grew up, when I was growing up, but then I moved to a, a more diverse neighborhood and it's just, it just seems so much more alive and real than other neighborhoods. So we love living here. What do you do in the neighborhood? What activities have you been doing over the last year? How has how your relationship with the neighborhood evolved? Got to know Christopher really well. <clears throat> he was a homeless guy. He was living in one of the small houses uh, by Othello, and now he's got into uh, low-income housing, low-income or homeless housing, however you want to put it, former veteran. And he loves my frijoles negros that I make that are Cuban-style black beans, but he calls them chili. I got to get some of that chili, he'll say. And the first couple of times I said, look, it's not chili, it's frijoles negros, but he's always going to call it chili. And now some oh, his friends are like, oh, you're the guy who makes the chili. I've heard about that. Like, whatever. I do a lot of walking. Um, you, know, I, you know, just the fact that I, I, I uh, you know, get along. I get along with anyone who treats me well. You know, I'm pretty open about those things. And, uh, you know, I'm not to be messed with if you cross me. I'm a, a you know, I'm, a, I'm a, not a person you want as an enemy. And I don't like to make enemies. It's taxing. Um, also, great friends with David Griggs, a former Marine stationed in Okinawa, like Sam, former Marine stationed in Okinawa, drinks sake. So we've been getting together almost every Thursday and drinking sake. And it's fantastic. Uh, I, I love hanging out with him. Love Nishiko, his wife, and uh, and just hanging out here and drinking sake every Thursday. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. So, Bhakti and I do a lot of walking. She loves the farmer's market. Um, that happens at the farm here, the urban farm just across the water, really, from us, the other side of the park, the only farm in the city, run by Seattle Tilth, in a beautiful way. It's wonderful to see that evolve. And, uh, you know, we love going to Jude's. We love Red Wing when it's open. It's still closed because of COVID. We do drink our coffee at Onda Origins and buy the coffee there. It's so good. It's so good. Oh, we love Umami Kushi where I had my 60th birthday party. They have the pan and they have sake there too. So it's a, it's a really sweet thing. Those are some of the things I do in the neighborhood. A lot of walking. Um, a lot of garbage. No, maybe a lot. Our fair share of garbage picking up, litter, litter picking. And uh, watching the hummingbirds. Look, there's two hummingbirds right there on the feet. I love that. That's fantastic. Wow. Good timing, hummingbirds. How about that? So you mentioned Sam, and I wanted to, at some point today, ask you about the passing of some of your friends and the, the movement of your relationships with artists past and present. You know, another... Another person, in addition to Sam Hamill, is Michael McClure, whose life and work you recently celebrated in the Bay Area. Can you talk a little bit about your influences, your friendships with artists, and that event specifically, that celebration? Um, yeah. I do want to point out with the hummingbirds that uh, we call this place Casa del Colibri, House of Hummingbird. And... Uh, you know that Michael McClure had a book called uh, Touching the Edge, Dharma Devotions from the Hummingbird Sangha is, is also part of how this got to be named after hummingbirds. 
Well, you know, Sam and, Sam and Michael are two of my greatest teachers. And just to think about them not being here, um, you know, puts me in a mood where I just want to turn the camera off and start weeping. Um, you know, you see them on the, on the altar there. Diane Dupreme was on the altar. I probably should put Wanda on the altar. And, you know, the altar has my ancestors. Uh, I can see my great-grandmother here, Ada Solange Roque, my grandmother, her mother, Aralina Ocampo Hernandez, Francisco uh, Pino, uh, Francisco Clemente there, um, and Michael and Sam and my daughters and, and my mom and dad and my family, my siblings. I've got three younger siblings. So, uh, you know, I am who I am in large part because of uh, Michael and Sam. Um, I met Michael first, oddly enough, interviewing him for my uh, syndicated radio show, which I syndicated to my nonprofit organization in 1995 when he was traveling with the book Three Poems right here. There's a great inscription on one of these. Uh, I have a few copies of this. Oh, yeah, here it is. Um, Dolphin Skull for Paul, who knows this poem better than I do, <laughs> and sees more into it as, it as if it is a Haida sculpture, is what he wrote in this. And uh, I spent a half an hour just reading from Dolphin Skull. Um, changed my life. Informed me about projective verse, told me, if you like what I do, it's because you like the process. So he deferred, you know, that to the process, which was not really accurate. Um, that sent me on a whole trip to wonder why everyone wasn't writing projective verse. <laughs> and I still wonder that. And, you know, I wonder that because projective verse and organic poetry, as Duncan and Levertov called it, or the practice of outside, as Blazer and Spicer called it, or uh, uh, impersonal verse, as was described of Gary Snyder's approach to it, you know, it just allows for a deeper um, gesture. I mean, that's that's the best way I can put it. So, um, huge life-changing thing. Sam really knew organic uh, and projective verse, and he's kind of on the more uh, uh, more right side of the spectrum than McClure and people like Brenda Hillman and um, early Levertov and Duncan and and Spicer and and others who write. Um, spontaneously. Sam was not quite that open, but he knew it. And uh, when he did write uh, in open form, um, so some of his most beautiful work from Habitations, before it came out as the book Habitation, which was essentially his collected, um, the poems Habitations, uh, which were about uh, Ian Boyden's process, uh, are just remarkable. I love them so much. And uh, the book that Ian made uh, for Sam is just a, it's just a gorgeous thing three feet three feet long about that wide and you open up and each poem is laser etched onto an original painting he was selling them for ten thousand dollars a pop and uh, damn when Sam showed me that when he was living in Port Townsend I looked at it and I just started weeping I've never seen a book that beautiful um, so kudos to both of them so yeah and Sam Sam and I used to play golf and have sake and, and you know wherever whenever I drink sake whenever I eat sushi Sam's present I mean it's, it's just there were so many occasions 
tell a little Sam story about uh, sake and sushi, more, more about sushi. Uh, when he was in Okinawa, he started studying Zen. And uh, he said to his Zen teacher, he said, I'm here for a couple of years. I want to learn all about sushi. And his teacher laughed and he said, <laughs> for seven years, you study rice. And then we introduce you to the fish. But I can teach you how to order in a sushi bar. And so he taught Sam the proper sequence of things and how to end with things more like unagi, closer to the end, hamachi kama, maybe right before that, and then end with tempura shiso, which was, it's not on the menu, almost never on the menu. I, I've never seen it on a sushi bar menu, but that's a... It's like throwing down to the sushi chef, can you do this? Are you good enough to do this? Do just enough to do it right. You know, it's a skill. And, um, you know, at the local sushi bar, they know we've asked it for it. And so they bring it almost all the time. So little things like that, you know, Sam, uh, Sam was there. And, of course, in poetry. I mean, when I was doing my graduate work and delving into the row between Duncan and Levertov, he said, don't pick sides. And he's, he was right. You lose. You pick sides and you lose. Because when you pick sides, you're coming from ego. That came from his Zen training. Don't pick a side! <laughs> so, that's a little bit about Sam. And uh, and Michael was just uh, memorialized at Cal Shakes uh, eight days ago. And uh, I had to really hold it together while I was doing my presentation because, like I say, um, they've changed my life so much um, that I would just start start bawling about missing them. But, uh, you know, as you saw in my party, uh, just coming out with a stanza and a half of Dolphin Skull like that without looking at the book is uh, is how much I have internalized that, that work. Would you like to read a little bit from each of those? Or? Sure. I just was looking at this poem near the back. Uh, read two Sam poems. True Peace Half broken on that smoky night, hunched over sake in a serviceman's dive somewhere in Naha, Okinawa, nearly 50 years ago. I read of the Saigon Buddhist monks who stopped the traffic on a downtown thoroughfare so their master, Tik Kwang Duk, could take up the lotus position in the middle of the street. And they baptized him there with gas and kerosene, and he struck a match and burst into flame. That was June. 1963, and I was 20, a U.S. Marine. The master did not move, did not squirm, he did not scream in pain as his body was consumed. Neither child nor yet a man, I wondered to my Okinawan friend, what can it possibly mean to make such a sacrifice, to give one's life with such horror, but with dignity and conviction? How can any man endure such pain and never cry, never blink. And my friend said and my friend said simply, Tik Kwan Duk had achieved true peace. And I knew that night true peace for me would never come. Not for me, Nirvana. This suffering world is mine, mine to suffer in its grief. Half a century later I think of Bo Ta Tik Kwan Duk, revered as a Bodhisattva now, his lifetime building temples, teaching peace, and of his death and the statement that it made. Like Shelley's, his heart refused to burn. Even when they burned his ashes once again in the crematorium, his generous heart turned magically to stone. 
What is true peace I cannot know. A hundred wars have come and gone as I've grown old. I bear their burdens in my bones. Mine's the heart that burns today. Mine the thirst, the hunger, the soul. Old master, old teacher, what is it that I've learned? Oof. I read that to David about Okinawa and sake. And we appreciate that, David Griggs. And you know, how, is, how does he end this book? This, his, essentially his collected, not every poem he's ever written is in here, um, but he ends with Of Cascadia. And by this time, I had several years into my 20-year bioregional cultural investigation of Cascadia. And he said, Of Cascadia, I came here nearly 40 years ago, broke and half broken, having chosen the mud, the dirt road, alder pollen, and a hundred avenues of gray across the sky to be my teachers and my muses. I chose a temple made of words and made a vow. I scratched a life in hard pan. If I cried for mercy or cried out in delight, it was because I was a man choosing carefully his way and his words growing as slowly as the trunks of cedars in the sunlit garden. Let the ferns and the moss remember all that I have lost or loved, for I carry no regrets, no ambition to live it all again. I can't make it better than it's been or will be again as the seasons turn and an old man's heart turns nostalgic as he sips his wine alone. I have lived in Cascadia, no paradise nor any hell, but both at once and made, as Elitus said, of the same material. A poor poet, I studied war and love. But Cascadia is what I'm of. You want some of this now? Well, when I took this book um, to the Olympic National Park in advance of interviewing Michael, I, I took the book in September 1995. He, he signed the first copy of this for Paul Nelson and grief and joy in the Olympics because we had done a grief um, ceremony. I told him about it. And um, so there's a certain point where um, where I was reading this uh, up and looking, overlooking this pristine watershed, Boulder Creek watershed. And, um, and as I'm reading it, I'm reading the lines, I looked out. I thought, I think I know what he's talking about here because I'm reading this, I'm in this setting about 53, 5400 feet up, looking at this pristine watershed where we'd seen a couple of bears where you don't even have to filter the water. We did, I think, but you can just put your bottle down and drink from it, it's that clean. And uh, so I'll just pick up from like the third or fourth stanza in this poem Gray hair on the floor and the radio talking. Steering wheel, more real than anything else. Foggy yellow lights in the tunnel. Skinny, adult, wrinkled, childlike old Horovitz playing Scriabin on TV. Me playing this beautiful pen. More alive than I ought to be. More alive than I ought to be. Oceans and freeways of grief and guilt. Triumphs of bare feet and drugs up the nose child of cocaine and raccoons and hollow logs, Fusus cryptestae filet. Nature loves to hide herself in Leonardo's secret language 
and the dimensions that disappeared after the bang. Old men dreaming of great-grandfathers are very wise, like saddlebugs, and wooden spools well with scarlet thread, and an antlered buck that drinks from a bowl in the yard in moon shadows. The saddlebug rests in the shadow of a pine cone, and red cars cruise by while the world is making itself with my senses. Can this be the beginning of old age? Fear comes in stars of consciousness, and now I am somewhere else. The thorns in my finger make stars. The blackberry is sweet and black and red and bitter. Cries of red-tail hawks are imitated by blue-black jays. Covers of old magazines are glossy, erotic. My sexuality grows underneath them like a rock rolled up on a beach by the edge of huge waves. I'm listening to you in my mind, a museum of dirty pictures. No one is interested, but the lion knows as he speaks to the eagle. This is all blackness. This is a cave holding a bowl of beef soup with the leaves and odors of Vietnamese basil. I will not eat baby animals. To chew on their ribs is tasty and revolting. I am spirit. I am a child with you. Holy shit, you know, you read something like that. Huh. Wow. So you've talked a lot about the relationships you have with them as your teachers and your contemporaries and how you've been informed by their form and their process and also how you've been informed by just spending time with them. How have they informed... Your, the content of your writing and the subjects that you're covering, whether it's concerning Cascadia or some of the more specific experiences. And then also how has your own writing shifted as you've explored their work and as your own work has grown? Well, you know, um, also in projective verse said the content does change and it does because, you know, uh, Olson was talking about how to write a received poem, how to be, how to be guided. And, um, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but when I met Michael, um, he had been opened in Subud. And I interviewed Allen Ginsberg, and he had been opened in Subud. And nine years after I met Michael, I found Subud. He didn't tell me about it. He, in fact, when I tried to get him to do the, the practice of the Subud organization, Latian Kejuan, he said, stop bugging me about Seward. <laughs> so I did. Uh, but he'd been opened. I'm convinced that Michael wrote, had the permission to receive ghost tantras by, by doing Latihan. I want to go to the Special Collections Library in Vancouver, BC, the Wake Bennett Library, and see if there's anything in his journal that said, I started growling in Latihan, and I thought, I could write poems about this. I'm convinced in my heart that that's true. Now I've just got to find the evidence. So, you know, so it changes when you're writing, when you're receiving, you know, you're connecting with a source larger than yourself and you're being guided by that. And, you know, the trick is to have your poems be guided and have your life be guided. And projective verse uh, will do that when it's practiced properly. Subud, Latihan Kajiwan will do that if it's practiced properly. Zen meditation will do that. Yoga will do that. There are many paths to get to that. But, um, you know, Bakura was the one who guided me to projective verse and gave me 
a brilliant example. I don't think there has ever been a better practitioner of projective verse than Michael McClure. Of course, he got into seriality. He was writing um, these graftings where he would take parts of Dolphin's skull, maybe the first couple of lines, and then go a different way. He did, it, he did that in several books. Of course, he was taught by Robert Duncan, who was into serial form with structure of rhyme and passages. Uh, of course, Duncan and Spicer and Blazer developed their ideas, uh, you know, and started in the 40s when they met at Berkeley. And um, they, uh, you know, they were all about serial form. Um, Blazer's, uh, his essay, The Practice of Outside, and, and, uh, and other things. I mean, this whole book, uh, right over here, The Holy Forest, you know, it's a whole serial, one thing, one poem, The Holy Forest. So um, that resonates very deeply with me. And of course, you know, Michael kind of pointed me in that direction. And Sam spoke very intelligently about the sequential poem too, like that poem, Habitations, that I was mentioning. Uh, it's, it's also in the big book. So, you know, the content changes. Um, Michael wasn't, he wasn't uh, as vocal about being uh, dedicated to place. I think Sam uh, was more vocal and wrote more directly about place in poetry. Um, but that's, these are the places where they led me. Michael also led me to Huaihan Buddhism, to Dogen. Sam led me to Zen, to Basho. Um, Sam led me to Haibun. Uh, I wrote lots of Haibun. Andrew Schelling helped me discover Haibun. Um, Ann Waldman helped me discover Haibun. And uh, so I wrote a lot of Haibun. And then I sort of got back into the... The way I was doing Haibun was a very neo-baroque, a very uh, new baroque, uh, dense uh, approach, which I think is how our minds work normally. They're they're more about uh, enjambment and parataxis, uh, abrupt subject changes, and many things that are part of the neo-baroque as produced as, as practiced by Jose Kozer and Jose Le Samalima and the people that were in the anthology Medusario. So, and then I came back to that writing these sonnets that are after Jack Clark, which is another sort of Olsonian connection because he, he is said to have taken Olson's poetic further past Olson than, uh, than Olson took Pound's poetics. So Jack Clark's uh, the sonnets that he does often with four or five epigraphs were a model and his Baroque um, approach to language was a model too. And I didn't get the real density from uh, McClure or from Sam Hamill, they're not into that density, but, you know, I, of course, I, I've never had the ability to receive something like the Ghost Hunters. I mean, they're just fantastic. And just, just, just saying words like Grar or Grahir are fantastic. Mary Norbert Cordy asked me to read her eulogy for Michael at uh, his memorial in the first you know, I got six minutes. Why am I going to read your work? And I thought, what an honor it is to read Mary Norbert Cordy's eulogy for Michael. So I did and told her about it. And it ends with, Grahir, Michael. Grahir. So uh, I don't know if that answers your question. That's what, I, that's what I got today. So speaking of serial poems and speaking of being informed or being called to specific specific subjects you've been working on 
a serial poem, American Sentences. In many ways, it's one long poem. In many ways, it's this collected, connected, chaotic mass. And it's still going. Can you talk a little bit about how you feel about American Sentences now, what, what it is to you now, and where it's going as you get older? Yeah, I can't see myself stopping writing one a day. Um, I don't think I have one for today, as a matter of fact. And, um, but I carry a pocket journal. This is something Andrew Schelling told high schoolers at West Auburn High in 1997, I think. It was the year Alan died. They came to our place like six days after Alan died, honored their commitment. Um, uh, so, yeah, I don't have one for today. Uh, yesterday's was, before you die, please get another email address besides AOL. I mean, <laughs> you know, yeah, you're laughing at it. It's like AOL, really? 2021, you're still on AOL? Um, my friend Jason had COVID, and he said, Jason with COVID, he held lit incense under his nose and could not smell. You know, that's how bad the Delta variant is. So, yeah, I write one every day. Um, you know, um, I don't write them for literary fame. Um, I write them because it's, it's part of my approach to living the life of a poet and to watching things and seeing what comes up and to marking occasions in my life. You know, uh, I, one I didn't read the other night at my birthday party, and I could have because it gets, you know, great reaction whenever I read it, uh, said a lot about uh, the relationship that Meredith and I had, my, my second wife, the mother of Anna Roque, our daughter, who, after Roque Dalton, Michael McClure called, well, how's a little train robber? <laughs> That's how he refers to Ellen. So Amy still calls Ella the little train robber. Um, but there's a sentence, and it was written in January, I think something like January 5th. So this far after the event that it was part of, um, it, the sentence goes something like, when her Thanksgiving stuffing had been this hard to flush, had we eaten it? <laughs> you know, it's like five weeks after, you know, and you're throwing it in the toilet because you don't want to eat it. And at first she was like, please don't read that. You know, it makes me look bad. And then she would see how people react. She's like, read the, read the Thanksgiving, read the stuffing poem. So, uh, and you know, we can laugh about that. Um, you know, we can laugh about my, my current and hopefully for the rest of my life partner, Bhakti Watts, who's, uh, and this, uh, this explains her. And she, she knows this is a fair sentence and it goes bhakti walks the line between zen fastidiousness and ocd <laughs> you know <laughs> and it's true she's very zen like when i was hearing about zen about how reading norman schaefer's uh, norman fisher's um book his new book which is fantastic it's like you know the, these people studying zen want this great enlightenment and they go and he says what's your advice he said wash your bowls it's like what the fuck does that mean? You know, I'm waiting for the crack of lightning to open my skull and be enlightened. And, you know, being present, you know, doing something as mundane and as important as taking care of the thing that nourishes you. That's Zen, you know. I'm so grateful to have Jason Worth in my life to teach me about Zen and to exemplify it in many ways and to point me in the right direction, to point me to people like Keiji Nishitani. I'm, I'm glad I, I skipped over almost all philosophy and then came to Nishitani. It was kind of like, you know, 
I think he trumps, all, especially all the deconstructionist stuff. I think he trumps it. He's got the answer that they didn't have. And of course, that Jason would be a professor of philosophy, would study Schelling and Heidegger and Hegel in German, in his family's native language, because Worth, the German name, and that he would go through all that study and teaching it at Seattle U and other places, put out books about it, and then come to the conclusion that it's about poetry and it's about plays and, and Keiji Nishitani. Those three things feel very validating to me. So I love that Jason's in my life and that he did, he did the hard work of getting to the place where I kind of skimmed to, which is the nature of a Virgo, I think, is kind of go, skimming the material and finding what the essence is and going for that. So. We don't have too much time left, so I wanted to ask you if you could talk for a bit about Cascadia, your study that you mentioned, 20 plus years of studying the bioregion and living in it, as well as developing an organization with all of the programs behind the organization within Cascadia. Yeah, uh, we changed the name of the organization to the Cascadia Poetics Lab. And that was after some very extensive organizational development. The first real uh, organizational development in the 2017 history of the organization. I've resisted it for a long time because I was afraid people were going to water down the mission. You know, It's like, make it more like Mary Oliver and people will like it. And it's like, that's not what motivates me. If people like Mary Oliver and, and, and get into poetry because of her, more power to them. Um, but... Uh, I've been influenced by gestures that are deeper than that. And and Chuck Pirtle, another person who's been a great um, teacher in many ways, when he saw where I was going with my essays after I did my graduate work, he said, it seems like what you're trying to do is develop a West Coast poetry ethos. And um, made a lot of sense. And then I remembered my bioregional, uh, my exposure to bioregional thinking from interviewing Peter Berg from the Planet Drum Foundation, which is fantastic. And then... Uh, started getting into it and um, interviewing David McCloskey, getting to know him, see his gorgeous, um, very evocative maps of the bioregion that make me feel like it's the country that I live in. And, you know, all this talk about secession is horseshit, you know. We don't have to succeed. You can become Cascadian in your heart like this. Still to carry a passport, still pay your taxes, still pay your student loans or figure out a way to get out of them. Um, but, you know, learn to be a Cascadian, connect deeply to, to place, this place with volcanoes and f fjords and uh, glaciers and islands and coastline and deserts and so many other amazing things. Lots of water. Waters, Cascadia got its name from the fact that water often, usually, um, it comes down from above. It's a defining feature, the Cascade Mountains. That's what uh, Douglas uh, named them, and that's, that's very accurate. You know, waterfalls, waterfalls, man, talk about natural features. So how does, how does water, how, how does, what role does water play? Well, it's the strongest thing, and yet it has no form. It takes the form of whatever vessel it's in. And it's a great model for us. And it, it's the essence of compassion. She who hears all cries, the goddess of waters, Kuan Yin. So, uh, it, it, I mean, 
This kind of teaching could happen anywhere in the world. There's water everywhere, but it's so much more present here and so much more available. So, um, you know, we're called to be more compassionate people here. And that doesn't mean, you know, letting people shit on you. It means having good boundaries. It means, uh, you know, understanding that this is all an illusion. It's very, I think, sympathetic to Buddhism. That might show my bias. Um, Subud is very popular in Cascadia. There are houses in Arcata and Portland and Seattle and Mount Vernon and Vancouver, a community in Victoria, though they don't have their house, they rent. It was nice to do Latihana Victoria this past summer. And um, in other places are isolated members. So um, I love this place. I've lived here since 1988. I grew up in Chicago. I still root for the White Sox. I still root for the Bears and the Bulls and the Blackhawks. Um, but I'm definitely a Cascadian. And uh, I think it's liberating to be uh, to live here and to be part of it and to um, you know, get out in the Olympic Mountains, get lost in the Olympic Mountains. <laughs> I was reading all of the story last night of being lost. And, uh, man, it scared her. You know, scared her that her dad potentially couldn't have been here had it not happened. But it was a great, um, here comes a helicopter again to get me. Are you sure you don't need another helicopter? <laughs> That's when that one poems, you got that survival, like a lifetime of clenched teeth and a way out of wilderness via helicopters. Oh, that's my, in Ninth Sonnets for Pop, that's how it ends. Uh, you've got that survival. How does it end? You want to think about his stain. Oh, and, th and I think that comes from Beckett. You know, I had to stain the silence, something, something to that effect. You want to think about his stain, my dad's. How he had the sense to bring more fire to a bloodline and more important, heart. When his brothers died, when he was not yet 10, he did what he had to do to survive, and you got that. Survival, like a lifetime of clenched teeth and a way out of wilderness via helicopters over the canyon, and a tuning of fix that fire into a mode where somehow there's a gracias in all of your grief. And, you know, ending it with a gracias in grief, that Spanish and English, you know, is a is a homage to my mom. Anytime there's Spanish, it's an homage to my mom who was born in Cuba, you know, and didn't teach us Spanish, but uh, at least developed us in such a way that could be, we could be very convincing when we cursed and said something like, chupe, mantaquilla, nene culo, puto, <laughs> something like that, <laughs> which I won't say in English. It scares people when you say that. <laughs> I think people are kind of scared by my intensity sometimes. And, uh, yeah, if they get to know me, they know I'm, I'm not only safe, but I'm fun. Like that mushroom who went into the bar. You know, why, why, why can't I have a drink? I'm a fun guy. <laughs> so, uh, so that's part of, part of Cascadia. And having raised two daughters here um, says something about my love for the place. So. Last question. Now that you're entering your 60s, what's next for you? Ten more years of working with Cascadia Poetics Lab. I want to retire when I'm 70. Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. Um, I would love to put an, uh, a house near the wilderness, somewhere on the Olympic Peninsula, to honor Sam Hamill. We wanted to call it Samuel, uh, Hamill House, uh, but one of our board members said, eh, too close to Hugo House, and they might see that, if not in a good way. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to make 
any literary enemies. We have enough. <laughs> but I said, why not name it after his house, his shadow hermitage in Port Townsend, which he called Kageon, and call it Kageon Ni. Ichi Ni San. Kageon Ni. So I'd love to raise a million dollars, buy a house on property for about half a million, and use the rest to run the house. And um, I'd like to spend a lot more time out there. I'd like to take people into the wilderness. I'd like to do workshops that incorporated going into the wilderness and, uh, and, and writing about it. Um, and um, I'd like to have a place to get away. I'd like to have a place to where uh, poets can do residencies and we can do intense weekends. I've been teaching poetics as cosmology workshops online. Zoom has been a great thing for that. I'd like to teach a lot more workshops. Um, I'd like more people to be in my workshops and uh, work for 10 years and then retire at 70, ideally with some kind of pension from this organization I founded in 1993 and whatever social security might be available at that time and, and uh, have student loan forgiveness for working in the nonprofit realm for, they're gonna make me work for 37 years before they let that loan go. But you know, you play by the rules that they make and as Ed Dorn said, uh, entrapment is the society's sole activity and only laughter can blow it to rags. So I work till I'm 70 and then write, 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 write. And my daughter will be out of high school at that time. So things kind of converge at age 70. My daughter's nine, my daughter Ella Roque, my younger daughter. So my commitment to her will have been fulfilled for the most part. I, mean, I, don't, I don't think it ever ends with your kids, but um, She'll be in high school, or she'll be out of high school, and I'll be able to uh, do what I want to do. And you know, it's uh, uh, you make when it, when you have children, you make sacrifices, and I'm I've, I'm happy to have made those, and for the most part, they turned out good. Um, but I'm also ready to start writing those ten years, seventy to eighty, writing poetry, and then when I hit eighty, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise, uh, I want to start thinking about you know memoir. How is my life going to be told? Um, there are enough, I left enough traces, god damn it, Google Paul E. Nelson Poet online, and there's all kinds of shit. I wasn't afraid to, uh, about putting stuff online, and, um, you know, I don't, I feel good about the content of them. You know, they usually look at people's tweets ten years later, five years later, and say, oh my god, look at this. But I don't think, that, you know, there's some more naive stuff or ignorant stuff that's on there, but I think I've been represented pretty well, and I think I've been guided, and I give thanks for that. And uh, if I have offended anyone, it's it was not uh, it's not what I intended to do. You know, uh, I'm, I I think I'm a kind, warm-hearted person, but like I said earlier, if you fuck with me, you know, I grew up in Chicago, so I learned how to you know I learned how to street fight, and um, one real fatal flaw. I don't back down, you know, I don't, I don't back down. I will find a way, you know, even if I have to grit my teeth and say something like, I'll show you, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not proud of that, you know, but that's, that's who I am and who I've been. And, uh, you know, working to be a little more Zen-like about things. Cascadian Prophets is a project of the Cascadia Poetics Lab in Seattle, Washington. Check us out online at cascadiapoeticslab.org.